Well, a number of years ago, my brothers and I took a trip to Graceland in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, And uh, some of you have no doubt been to Graceland. And if you have, of course, you know, it was the home of Elvis Presley, the original king of rock and roll, for about 20 years. He lived there from 1957 to 1977. And then after he died, they turned it into sort of a shrine to Elvis Presley, like a museum. And so you can go walk through, and it looks as weird today as it did when he moved out, uh, with the green shag carpet and the, the gaudy chandeliers and the crazy wallpaper. And so you get to go through and see how he lived. Uh, if you've been there, you also know that as you approach Graceland, what you will also see are a number of Elvis impersonators. Uh, People who apparently have dedicated their lives and their careers to imitating the king of rock and roll. So they dress up in the jumpsuit and they do their hair like Elvis. They prefer, by the way, to be called tribute artists and not Elvis impersonators. I found that out this week. Uh, There are all different kinds of Elvis impersonators. So when my brothers and I were there, we actually uh, gathered a couple of them together and decided we wanted to take a picture. And so here we are with two different... Elvis tribute artists, uh, they are uh, on either side of us, and you can see they actually, neither of these guys look anything like Elvis Presley, apart from the clothes and the hair. But there are tons of these guys around. Uh, I read, and this was from CNN, so maybe it's true, we're not sure, but uh, I read that there are an estimated 85,000 Elvis impersonators in the world. That was from 2011. They said if the current rate of growth of Elvis impersonators continues, then by 2040, nearly one-third of the world's population will be Elvis impersonators. So uh, there you go. Everybody wants to be Elvis, apparently. Everybody wants to be the king. Now, why do I share that with you? Because although everybody wants to be the king, there's only one king. And I think that's true on a broader scale in our world as well. Everybody wants to be on some level in charge. Whether you say, you know what, I just want to be in charge of my life. Or you say, I want to be in charge of the world, right? I want to be the guy who rules all the other people or the girl who rules all the other people in the world. A lot of people want to claim the throne of a nation or of a world, believing and promising that they can solve all of the problems that plague us. I mean, let's consider just what's happened in our country over the last year and a half. We started toward the end of 2015 with somewhere around 20 somewhat serious contenders for the presidency of the United States, and they were whittled down systematically. But all of them promised that if they were in charge, they could fix it all. I mean, that's how politicians get elected, right? I will fix the poverty and the racism and the crime and your physical sickness and all of these problems that we face. And whoever can promise in the most effective way ends up getting elected to the office, right? So there's lots of people who want to be in charge, right? We are no different, by the way, than every group of people from every era of history in every place. Everybody wants a king. Right? Everybody wants somebody who's going to be in charge and solve all the problems. And so we look to leaders to do that. We don't live in a monarchy here, but we still want a king. Now, as you go back through the history of the world and the history of Israel, that's really the pattern that we're going to see, starting with the, really the very beginning of the book of Genesis when God created the world. 
we're going to see that everybody is going to begin to recognize that the world is broken and we need someone to fix it. Right? And, and however you feel about uh, what happened on Friday, about the new president or the old president, whatever your politics are, my guess is that there's that part of you that yearns for a good leader, a good ruler who will fix all of the problems. In Jesus' day, it was very much the same. Right At the time of Jesus, people were expecting in the nation of Israel the Messiah, the promised king, to come. And so there were actually a lot of people who were claimants to that title, who came along and said, I'm the guy, I'm the Messiah, I'm the one that can fix everything. Vote for me for Messiah and I'll fix it. King Herod himself was a pretender to the throne. And we'll talk about him in a bit, but he wasn't even Jewish. But he said, I want to be the Jewish king. As you go through the scripture, though, we'll see God consistently putting a question before his people, and that is, will you let me be your king? Will you let God be your king? Will you recognize God as your one true king? And so the story of the scripture is God beginning to develop a kingdom, right? He's going to put people on the earth, and he's going to say, I want to establish a kingdom on the earth where I will reign through you. In other words, my people will be my many kings who will reign on my behalf over the earth. And God says, in the midst of that, will you let me be your king? Right, and and everybody's gonna fail to represent God well. And so as the story of the Bible unfolds and as the story of God's kingdom unfolds, God begins to lay out his plan that one day a king is going to come who will be everything you need and hope for and dream of. One day a king will come who really will solve crime and poverty and racism and sickness and death and all of these problems. All right, when we look at the book of Matthew this semester, we're going to see Matthew make the case that Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, is the king who will solve everything. Even though there are a lot of pretenders to his throne, Jesus Christ is the one king who is fully God and fully human, who will resolve all of the problems of our nation, all the problems of our world, all the problems of history. This is the guy, right? Matthew is deeply concerned with validating the kingship of Jesus. That's really what the book of Matthew is about. And we're going to invest our time in the book of Matthew this semester. Matthew uses the words for kingdom and king more often than anybody else in the New Testament. 55 times Matthew uses the word kingdom, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, almost twice in every chapter on average. 22 times he uses the word for king more than any other New Testament author. And so this is the major theme of Matthew, is Matthew from the very beginning is going to say, this is the king that you're waiting for, the one everybody else is pretending to be. Right? And the question that Matthew will pose to us as we walk through the book is simply this, will we acknowledge Jesus and follow him as our one true king? Will we acknowledge Jesus and follow him as our one true king? Will we allow Jesus to be the king of the universe? Will we submit ourselves to Jesus as our king, right? Not just our nation, but ourselves, because uh, we want a king, and quite often because we don't see a good king around, we say, you know what? I'll just be my own king, and I will try my best to at least fix the problems around me, and I will do what I want to do and what I think is best, and so we set ourselves up as the monarchs of our own little kingdoms, 
But Matthew will say, no, there is one key over history, over your nation, over the world, and over you. Will you submit to King Jesus? We're going to look at Matthew 1 and 2 this morning, and we're going to see how Matthew begins to validate the kingship of Jesus. That he's going to present to us, right in the first couple of chapters, some very significant lines of evidence to say, this is the king. From the very opening verse of the book of Matthew. All right, he's going to begin to validate the kingship of Jesus. So look with me at Matthew 1, 1. Very first verse, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then if you know the book of Matthew, you know that the following 17 verses are a genealogy. Now, it seems kind of strange to us in our day and age to start a book with a genealogy. You don't open the latest John Grisham novel and he gives you a list of the ancestry of each of his characters. You'd say this book needs an editor, right? We don't do that today. But when you are writing a book that is designed to validate somebody as king, their genealogy matters. And so that's why Matthew starts here. I don't know how many of you have seen the new series on Netflix called The Crown. Right? The Crown is the story of Queen Elizabeth II and her family, the current reigning monarch of Great Britain. Right? And what's interesting about it is from the very first episode, episode one, Season one, when they begin the first episode, they actually don't start with a shot of Queen Elizabeth. What do they start with? They start with her father, King George VI. And they show her dad, and you begin to get a sense of who this person is. But the thing you notice right up front is what? He's sick. He has cancer in his lungs. He's going to die. And so there's this foreshadowing. Here's her father. And then her father moves into another room, and you see the daughters... Elizabeth and Margaret, and they begin to set up this family story for you visually to demonstrate that by the time we get to episode two, and I hope I'm not giving too much away, she becomes the queen, okay? But he, yeah, I know you're, whoa, okay. He lays the groundwork starting with her family. That's what Matthew does with Jesus. He starts with his family, and in fact, the two most critical names in this genealogy are right at the beginning, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, or the Christ, that is the anointed one, the anointed king. He's the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, in order to understand why that's so significant, we need to go back a bit into the Old Testament, because if you had been a Jew in the first century and you read this opening verse, Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, you would go, whoa, this is the guy. And I hope that Matthew's right. This is, Matthew's saying this is the one we've been waiting for. I want to go back for a bit to the Old Testament and try to illustrate for a few minutes why this is so significant, the way Matthew starts his gospel. So bear with me. We are going all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. I promise we'll get you out of here in time, at least for dinner. Okay, so we're going to start with Genesis chapter 1 and go from there. And we're going to see he's demonstrating Jesus' kingship, first of all, through his background. All right, so go to Genesis 1 with me for a minute. The creation of the world. God made Adam and Eve. And it says, God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion 
over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Here's what God does in the very beginning. He makes image bearers, right? He made Adam and Eve in his image and he placed them on his earth. And he says, here's your job. You are to reign as my representatives. I want you to rule over the the world. You're in charge. So you reign over all the animals and over all the fish and over all the birds and have dominion over them as my representative. That means you will do what I tell you to do. But you get to be little monarchs of the world that I have made with delegated authority because God says, I want to have my kingdom represented through you on the earth. Now, of course, if you follow the story of Genesis, you know Adam and Eve don't do so well at that task. And it only takes a couple of chapters before they violate the one law that God gave them. Don't eat from that tree. They listen to the serpent, to Satan, and they go eat from the tree. And so all of a sudden they decide, look, we are going to be our own monarchs. We're going to be our own king. We don't want to obey God's rules. We're going to obey our own. So in Genesis 3, of course, you have what we call the fall. God curses their lives in judgment for their sin. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. You're going to die. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden. You are no longer fit to reign. And you remember God places an angel in front of the garden with a flaming sword. It says, you can't go back. And as you go through the book of Genesis, what you'll see is that God graciously gives his people more opportunities to obey him. Right, And so the people right before the flood, they get worse and worse and worse and worse and God in his patience waits and then he judges the world with a flood. And then the the people begin to repopulate the earth, Noah and his family, after the flood and then they get worse and worse and worse. They finally decide we're going to build a tower that's going to go all the way to heaven and we will rule the world and not even God will tell us to separate. And God says that you're wrong. And so he confuses their languages and scatters them into nations. So that by the time we get to Genesis 12, what we have is that the world is now many nations with many different languages. And what God does now in Genesis 12 is he begins a new stage of his plan. And he finds this guy named Abraham and he appears to Abraham. We don't know anything about Abraham really before Genesis 12 at all. It tells us where he's from, but but God seems to select Abraham kind of out of nowhere. And he says, Abraham, you're going to be the guy. And he appears to Abraham and he makes him a promise or a covenant. He says, Abraham, go to the land I will show you and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In other words, God says, Abraham, I'm going to choose you and your descendants now to be the representatives of my kingdom. That as people see how your descendants obey me and follow me, they will want to come to me. And so you are meant to be a shining beacon right here in this central, critical piece of real estate in the Middle East. You're going to live there. You're going to worship me. You're going to obey me. And all of the nations are going to stream to the light of God. That's the plan, right? As you go through the history, then from there forward, of course, you know that they ended up in uh, Egypt in slavery. God miraculously delivers them 
through the leadership of Moses and Aaron. And then they go out into the wilderness and God says, okay, now you're a nation. I'm going to lead you into the promised land. And he gives them the law, right? And the, the purpose of the law is to give them some frame of reference for how to represent God, right? The law is not just arbitrary commands. The law is meant to be a representation of who God is, to say, you are now meant to be like me. Right, so in Deuteronomy, after they receive the law, God says to them, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth and all these blessings shall come upon you. And then Moses lists out the blessings. You'll have peace in the land. You'll live long lives. You won't get as sick as the other nations. You'll have prosperity financially. Your crops will grow. All these great things are going to happen. But then he says, listen to this. If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And he lists the curses and it's just the opposite of the blessings. Your crops won't grow. Your kids won't live very long. The nations around you will constantly attack you. And finally, you will be carried away into exile. Now, as you read the history of Israel, of course, you know they spent a lot more time in this portion of Deuteronomy than in the first portion. They decided over and over and over, we will not submit to God's kingship because we want to be in charge. We want to worship gods we made or the nations around us made. And they increased in their wickedness and their violence. And they were repeatedly judged. And at one point, of course, the the people say, you know what, Uh, we don't want just God to be our king because when we go out into battle, everybody else has a king with a scepter and a crown that leads them into battle and we've we've got God, right? I realize God is great, but it doesn't look as cool. So they said, God, give us a king. We need a king to lead us. And so God gave them the first king. His name was Saul. And Saul was exactly what they were looking for. And the the scripture tells us why Saul was exactly what they were looking for. You know why? It's because he was tall. That was it. That is the primary descriptor that we get of Saul initially. He's a tall guy and he's an impressive guy. And everybody goes, that's the guy, right? But here's the problem with Saul. He was morally and spiritually bankrupt. And so he set the standard that the rest of the nation followed and God ultimately deposed Saul from the throne. And then David comes along. And David is a glimmer of hope in the midst of this darkness. Right? David isn't perfect. In fact, his sins are terrible in many ways. But David is a man after God's own heart because he is humble toward God, because he worships God, because when he sins, he is repentant. And as David's reign goes on and David seeks to honor God, God makes David a promise. And here's what he says. David, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So God says, David, somebody's going to come from your line and your line is always going to have the right to rule over the nation. In other words, I'm going to raise up a descendant eventually, a king who will reign on the throne forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Okay, so let me tie this for a moment back to the book of Matthew. How does Matthew begin? He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed king. Who is he? He's the son of David the son of Abraham. 
right up front. Matthew says, this is the guy who came from the line of Abraham, right? That's significant because he is a Jewish man of God's chosen people, and he is the son of David. You say the son of David to a first century Jew, and they go, oh, that son of David. That's the one. Right? And what you see happen throughout the rest of the Old Testament, of course, is every king who comes along, the question that the nation is asking themselves is, is this the king? Is this the son? Is this the one who will free us from oppression and deliver us from our sin and get rid of all the problems that plague us? Right? Same questions that we ask every four or eight years. Is this the guy who's going to fix it all? But in their case, it was a guy that God had chosen. And they are consistently disappointed. Almost all of David's descendants lead them into idolatry. With, with a few notable exceptions. And even those exceptions have their fatal flaws. So there is no king that fits this criteria. And they wait and they wait. And the people descend further and further into sin and darkness until, we, as you know, God sends them away into exile in Babylon for 70 years. And even when they come back, they're under oppression. By the time the New Testament opens, the people are under the oppression of the Romans. But they always remember the promise of the prophets, going back to books like Jeremiah, promises of hope. Jeremiah says, I'm going to give you a new covenant. He says, this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. In other words, God says, you have not done a good job obeying the law. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send my spirit to be with you so you can obey the law and I'm going to restore the land. And ultimately what they're expecting is a king would come who would lead the people into righteousness and peace. He would be a descendant of David. All right, so that's where Matthew opens. The genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he shows us his descent from David and Abraham. All right, Jesus is the king because he has the background that is necessary to be the king. And Matthew is saying, this is the guy. Wasn't Hezekiah, wasn't Uzziah, wasn't Ahab, wasn't any of those other guys. This is the guy. And he's going to validate it. And he begins with his background. And then Matthew will move to his birth. Second, look with me at verses 18 to 20 of chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. So Joseph, betrothed to Mary, of course, when he finds out that she's pregnant, plans to divorce her. But the angel comes and says, no, Joseph, this child is from the Holy Spirit. And Jesus' birth, the way in which Jesus is born, validates his kingship. All right, let me, let me trace this just for a minute for you. As you go through the Old Testament, what you'll find is that important people 
often have significant birth stories. All right, so think for a minute about Abraham and Sarah and how Sarah was barren and had no child, but all of a sudden God gives this 90-year-old woman the child of promise, Isaac, through whom the promises of the covenant to Abraham are going to come. All right, Samson, one of the great judges of the nation of Israel, his mom was barren and they prayed and God gave her a son. Samuel, one of the great prophets, same thing. His mother, Hannah, is barren and she prays and God gives her this great son who is a prophet of the nation of Israel. John the Baptist, probably the last real Old Testament prophet, so to speak, although we hear about him in the New Testament. His mother, Elizabeth, was barren and God gives her a son. So what you see is that sometimes the birth story tells us someone is significant, right? So that the Bible tells these birth stories that validate the significance of the individual. Uh, Some of you ladies may be familiar with this concept because my guess is that from time to time you have gathered with others and shared your kids' birth stories, And how wonderful they were, or maybe how painful they were, right? So somebody says, I was in labor for eight hours, and the epidural wore off, and it was tough, but I made it. And somebody else, the next person has to top it, right? (laughs) I was in labor for 20 hours. We didn't even have epidurals. And I made it. I gritted my teeth. I love to tell the story of our oldest daughter, because when people start saying, wow, we had had an eight-and-a-half-pound, nine-pound baby, I always win that conversation. Here's why. Because our oldest daughter was 10 pounds, 9 ounces. She was the biggest baby in the hospital. People came out of their rooms and left their babies behind (laughs) to see our baby. She wasn't only the biggest, she was the most beautiful one in the hospital as well. That's more objectively true, right? But she was... The biggest one. And so people are like, man, we had, we had big babies. We had an eight and a half, nine pound baby. I go, I win, right? 10 pounds, nine ounces. Now it's not like the world record, but I've rarely met anybody who can top it. Right? Here's what Matthew is doing. He's saying, look, I want you to think about all the great birth stories and all the great babies from the history of Israel. You know, there's Isaac and there's, yeah, Samson and there's Samuel and then there's John the Baptist. And Matthew goes, but this one, his birth story trumps all of them because it's not that Jesus is born to a barren woman. Jesus is born to a virgin without any male human agency at all. And what that demonstrates is that this child is not only going to be a human king, but a divine king as well. He is sent by God and conceived of the Holy Spirit, fully human and fully divine. All right, which is why Matthew in verse 23 will quote this passage from Isaiah chapter 7. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then Matthew adds, that means what? God with us. The virgin birth demonstrates the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ, that he alone is fit to be the perfect human representative and perfect king sent by God to establish God's kingdom. Right? As the story of Jesus' birth and infancy progresses, of course, what we also see is these magi from the east in Matthew chapter 2. These guys come and they see a sign in the sky 
And so they come to worship the king of the Jews. Now, these guys are not from Israel. They are from some other nation. And what Matthew is telling us by describing the Magi is this, that this is also the one, the son of Abraham, through whom what's going to happen? All the nations will be blessed. See, he's not just the king of Israel. He's the king of the world. And even these Magi in this pagan land, come to bow down before him. And you remember they come to Herod, who is a pretender to the throne. Herod wasn't even Jewish. He was just a man who had ascended to the throne through intrigue and violence. And they say, hey, we saw a star in the sky that indicated to us that the king of the Jews has been born. And Herod, because he wants to be in charge, he calls his wise men around, his own wise men, And he says, where's the Messiah going to be born? Herod recognizes what's happening here. He just doesn't like it. And they say, well, in Bethlehem. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. You know why? Because Micah chapter 5 says this, but as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago from the days of eternity. Herod, it's been prophesied. And sure enough, the Magi go to Bethlehem and they find the baby and they worship him. And what Matthew is telling us is that in his background and in his birth, everything about Jesus says he's the king. He's the one. He's the guy you've been waiting for for thousands of years. And again, the unwritten question here is, will you you acknowledge him as the king? Nobody would have read the book of Matthew when it was written and failed to understand what he was saying. The only question is, would you agree that Jesus is the God-sent human and divine king to rule the world? And so Matthew looks at his background, looks at his birth, and then thirdly, he demonstrates Jesus' kingship through the names that he describes throughout the first couple of chapters of the book, right? When we think about the names of kings, often what we find is as you look throughout history, you can tell a lot about a king based on what people called them, right? So you'll you'll read about William the Conqueror or some king who's called the Just or the Wise or the Iron Fist or whatever it may be. You can tell a lot about a king based on what they call him. I found this week some of the more interesting nicknames for kings throughout history. Some of my favorites, I wrote them down. Alexander the Potbelly. Uh, He was a king in Russia from 1414 to 1417. And I guess he had such a prodigious potbelly that that's how he went down in history. I feel bad for him. It's probably hard to work out when you're the king of Russia. Uh, Alfonso the Slobberer. Uh, that is real. He was the king of Galicia in Eastern Europe from 1188 to 1230. The reason they called him the slobberer was because if you came in to talk to him and he got really angry with you, he would begin to holler. And as he hollered, spittle would come out of his mouth. And so all of the people in his court, I guess behind his back, named him the slobberer, right? That's how he went down. Uh, Archibald the loser, Uh, He was a Scottish nobleman in the 15th century. I guess he lost one too many battles and was known as the loser. Uh, Another one of my favorites, Louis the Unavoidable. Uh, This was Louis XVIII of France. After Napoleon died, um, there wasn't anybody else to really take over, and they had Louis XVIII imprisoned 
right? Because Napoleon had kind of conquered France. And after he died, they all looked around and said, well, now who's going to be in charge? And the only guy left was Louis, who was in prison. So it was unavoidable. So they put him in charge as Louis XVIII. Uh, And then lastly, Wilfred the Hairy. Uh, He was a ninth century count of Barcelona. One of his contemporaries wrote that Wilfred was hairy in places not normally so for men. Uh, I didn't really want to do a whole lot of research into what that meant. But that's how he's remembered. So as you go through history, you've got all of these sort of nicknames that are given to kings, and they tell you something about the king. Matthew does the same with Jesus. And there are three titles that he uses, three names for Jesus throughout the first chapter of the book of Matthew that we need to pay attention to as we walk throughout the book. One of them we've already mentioned, and it's Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew is saying very starkly that Jesus is, quite literally, God in the flesh. Now, to understand this a little more, if you go back to Isaiah 7, Isaiah had made this prophecy, right? A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. You'll call his name Emmanuel. Now, there was a, what we call a near fulfillment of that prophecy. That is, there was a fulfillment of that prophecy that took place in the time of Isaiah. And then there's a far fulfillment of that prophecy that we see in Matthew chapter 1. In the near fulfillment, the baby that Isaiah and his wife had was meant to be a sign to King Ahaz because King Ahaz did not trust God to deliver the nation from their enemies. And so Isaiah prophesies, look, before this baby, there's going to be this baby born. He's going to symbolize God with us. Before this baby is old enough to tell right from wrong, God's going to deliver you from these other nations, Ahaz. He's going to do it without you. Because you won't believe in him. And sure enough, that baby is born. And before that baby is about 12 years old, God delivers the people apart from Ahaz. And it sets in motion this pattern in which God will send a baby that represents that God is powerful and active among the people. So when we get to Matthew 1 and Jesus is born, Matthew says, okay, you go back to Isaiah 7 and you see that pattern that this baby represents God's power and presence and work. This baby takes it to a whole new level. Because he is literally God with us. And he will be the deliverer. He will be the one that will reign over the world forever and ever and ever and ever. He is God with us, Emmanuel. The second name that Matthew uses is Christ or Messiah. Christos is the Greek term. Messiah is the Hebrew term from where we get Messiah. It simply means the anointed one. It is the king God has chosen. That's the first way that Jesus is described in the book of Matthew. Jesus the Christ or the Messiah. All the way through all of the gospels, of course, Jesus is described as Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. When you get into the epistles, it's uh, almost always that Paul refers to him as Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. We forget that Christ is actually not part of his given name. Christ is a title that means he is the king. He's the anointed one. If you go back to Psalm chapter 2, you'll see this. Psalm chapter 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Mashiach, his anointed one. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. 
And Psalm 2 was widely recognized as a messianic psalm. And the idea is there's all these pretenders. And they all want to overthrow God. And God looks down and he laughs. And he says, I have installed my Messiah, my anointed king. And as Psalm 2 concludes, the psalmist will say, you better kneel and kiss the son, right? kiss his ring, because he's in charge. Oh, we better. All right. So Psalm 2 lays out the Messiah is coming. Matthew chapter 1 says this is him. The Messiah is here. And then the third title, of course, or name that we see for Jesus is Jesus, his given name which means God saves. You remember the angel tells Joseph, look, you're going to call his name Jesus because he will save his people from his sins. Jesus is a Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua, right? And and if you think about Joshua in the Old Testament, Joshua was a deliverer, right? He helped the people go into the land and they conquered the promised land and he helped deliver the people from their enemies. And so his name means Yahweh saves. God saves. When we get to the book of Matthew, it would have been normal for Joseph to name his firstborn son Joseph, right? You see that uh, actually with Zechariah and Elizabeth as well. Uh, Zechariah has to write down his name is going to be John because everybody else is saying, well, it should be Zechariah. He's your firstborn. He goes, no, God says John, right? Same with Jesus. God says to Joseph, you're going to call his name God saves. Why? Because he will save his people, not only from foreign oppressors, but from the greatest enemies of all, from sin and from death. This is the one. This is the king who has come to save the people of God from everything that ails them. So Matthew will continue to ask this question as we move throughout the book of Matthew. Will we acknowledge Jesus and follow him as our one true king? Right, his background, his birth, his names, all validated. And that's just where Matthew begins. As we move throughout the book of Matthew, we're going to see Matthew continue to expand upon this theme. And in fact, in a week or two, when we talk about the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we're going to see what? The first words that come out of Jesus' mouth when he begins to preach are what? Repent for why? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why is the kingdom of heaven at hand? Because the king has arrived. So will you acknowledge and follow Jesus as the one true king? As we close for just a minute, I want to flesh that concept out in our own lives for just a second. Will we acknowledge Jesus and follow him as our one true king? Right, not only in terms of our politics, right? I think many of us feel a lot of angst right now about the political situation. As, as, as you see what's going on, it's interesting. Uh, some people, as, after the inauguration on Friday, they thought this is a bold new era for our country and I love it. Other people thought this is the end of the world as we know it. Right? And based on my Facebook feed, there is no middle ground. Either the world is starting or the world is ending. Matthew will say, look, will we acknowledge Jesus as the king who will reign forever and ever. I think it's an important piece of symbolism that before we inaugurate a new president, we see the previous guy leave. He drops his keys at the desk and gets on a helicopter and takes off. Why? Because he's a temporary employee. 
He just doesn't last. Even if we were in a monarchy like Great Britain or some other place where we had a king or a dictatorship, like we saw with Cuba, what happened? Eventually, Fidel Castro died. Eventually, even though she's been there 65 years, Queen Elizabeth will die. Right? Every human leader will fade away. Jesus, as we see from the promise to David and as we see in the closing pages of the book of Revelation, Jesus will reign forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Right? So we don't place our hope, our ultimate hope, in a human leader, nor do we veer to despair. We allow Jesus to be the king. Not only, by the way, of our politics, but of our lives. And that, one of the things we're going to see as we move through the book of Matthew is Jesus will press into areas of our lives that we probably would just as soon he left alone. He is going to talk about things like marriage and the way we think and the way we treat people. And the question comes up, why, if he's making a claim to be the king of Israel, does he care what I do with my private life? And the reason is because Jesus came to inaugurate the kingdom of God and all who would participate in the kingdom of God have to subscribe to the values of the king. Right? And so as, remember, the Old Testament closes, we have these promises that one day, even though you can't do that, one day the Spirit of God will come to provide forgiveness of sin and the empowerment to do what the nation of Israel could never do, which is to obey God and to know God and to follow God. Right? And so that's, that's the story that we'll see laid out in Matthew. As Jesus says, this is what the kingdom looks like. This is what God's values look like. And those who join the kingdom of God will share these values. But we also read like the Sermon on the Mount and we're going to go, I can't do that. I can't do any of that stuff. Right? If the standard is that high, then I am doomed. And what we'll see Jesus do is recognize, nope, you cannot meet the standard. You have already failed. And Jesus himself is the perfect king. God in flesh will go to the cross and die in our place. He will bear the punishment for our sin, rise again. He defeated death and sin. And then guess what happened is Jesus sends the Spirit. Because those who trust in Jesus now have their hearts and minds cleansed of sin and the Spirit can live inside of us and empower us to do what people in previous generations could not, which is represent the values of God as His people. All who trust in Jesus Christ have eternal life and all who trust in Jesus Christ are given the Spirit to follow and obey Jesus. So Jesus will say, will you acknowledge me as your king and follow me, submit to my values? It may be that you're here this morning and you have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ. And maybe you don't know him. And the, the message of Matthew simply is that Jesus is who he said he was. Jesus is the king of the universe. He is God in the flesh. And he offers eternal life to all who will trust in him for forgiveness of their sin and eternal life. And if you're here this morning and you say, I already know him, then we're going to keep coming back to that question as we move through Matthew. Will I submit my life to the kingship of Jesus? My views of politics, my views of my kids, my views of my spouse, my understanding about my money and my time. Jesus is going to push into all of those areas as we move through Matthew. Because you and I don't think or act rightly. And we need the king 
to adjust our perspective to that of God because one day when the king returns, he will set up a perfect kingdom of righteousness and justice and he is making kingdom representatives who will do what Adam and Eve failed to do in the garden, to reign as God's small princes and monarchs with Jesus as our perfect king forever and ever and ever. So will you and I follow Jesus and acknowledge him as our one true king as God continues to lay out his kingdom plan? Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for the morning and we are grateful for your word. We pray that we would acknowledge Jesus Christ as our one true king as we sang earlier. We have no other king but Jesus. Around the world still today, there are places where that's an unwelcome song and a subversive message. There are places where people would still be arrested or killed for those words. We recognize that and we don't want to worship any other earthly king or ruler. And and all too often we recognize that we want to be our own kings too. And so we pray that we would submit to your kingship and the kingship of Jesus. Father, we pray, convict our hearts through your spirit to follow you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.